0: Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and let's take a survey of the remaining verses in this chapter. If you come into Revelation chapter 20, with the instruction and knowledge that Paul, Peter, and Jesus have given us, it is not that difficult to see. We know that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, all things are going to be wrapped up. The, the wicked are going to be judged. The world's going to be burned up. The righteous are going to be gathered into heaven. We'll have the final judgment. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. You heard Second Peter chapter 3 read to you? Peter said, We look for new heavens and a new earth. He didn't say we look for a millennial kingdom. We don't look for a tribulation. We don't look for a rapture. We look for the final day of all things. We see that in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. It's wherever the second coming is dealt with. That's the way it's described in the rest of the Bible. When we parted before our break, we looked at Matthew chapter 12 and saw that Jesus bound the strong man, who is the devil, at his first coming. So when we come into Revelation chapter 20, all of a sudden it looks pretty simple. You know there at the end you have the second coming. Because he's going to come in flaming fire and burn up the wicked and cast the devil into hell. And you know that Satan was bound at the first coming because we read it in Matthew chapter 12. I want to take a few minutes and, and race through just a few verses. A smattering of a sample about the devil being bound at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Before I do that, let's think for a minute about the thousand. I already mentioned an example. When you ask somebody, what are you, how busy are you today? Are you able to do such and such today? It's a common expression for us to say, i got a thousand things to do, when you don't have anything near that. Two thousand years have already expired between the first coming and the second coming, which isn't here yet. The thousand in the Bible, a thousand years, is just a description of a long time. When the Bible says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills... Who owns the cattle on hill number 1001? The Lord owns the cattle on all the hills, but they're represented as a, as a thousand hills. Holding your fingers in Revelation 20, take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is common in the Bible. There's not just one or two places where the word thousand is used as a description for just a lot, a lot many. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now if the Lord, our God, he is God and he is a faithful God, does he become unfaithful when we get to the one thousandth and first generation? He's faithful to all generations but sometimes all generations is replaced with a thousand generations. Learn to read your Bibles with spiritual understanding. If you read the whole Bible through and you read it through meditatively and carefully, you would know the Lord used the word a thousand that way before you ever got to the last book of the Bible. The Bible does give us knowledge in a progressive fashion, meaning by the time we get to Matthew, we learn a whole lot more than we knew in the books of Moses. And by the time we get to Revelation, we've had the, the apostles lay down a foundation for us to understand. I'm not going to give you any more examples than that or I'll be in trouble. I can tell you this. Why does it say in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12, And the ten horns, which are the ten kingdoms of Europe, which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Do you want to make that 60 minutes of 60 seconds? By the time the kings figured out that they were going to give their kingdoms to the beast and get power from him and decreed that and had it published and taken to the street, they would have already withdrawn their commitment because the hour would be up. The word hour in the book of Revelation is used for a very short period of time. A thousand years is used for a very long period of time. In another place, you can find out where it says you're going to suffer persecution ten days. Well, anybody can handle ten days. Just hold out for the eleventh day. But again, it's Revelation's symbolic language describing a period longer than an hour, but something that can be endured. But a thousand years in the Bible is used for all the time between the first coming and the second coming. There's more examples, but we've got to go on. Look at what it said in verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him. And here's exactly how he was limited and restrained that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. But for, the, for a thousand years, for a long time, between the first coming and the second coming, except for that little season, the devil's going to be bound up and he's, he's locked up and there's a seal on him that he can't deceive the nations anymore. Now, we've got to go back and look at what Jesus did to see what it meant by deceiving the nations. And when we do go look, we see that the gospel was able to go out and men believed it. Men were delivered from the power of darkness and out of the kingdom of the devil to believe the gospel. And it happened at the first coming. The reason we get so angry against the premillennial scheme of things and we consider it a false gospel and blasphemous heresy is because it denies the work of Jesus Christ at His first coming. The work of Jesus Christ at His first coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Right. Look at First John chapter three and verse eight. You can keep a little note marker or your hand in, in Revelation twenty because we'll be coming back. But First John chapter three and verse eight reads like this: He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And one of the things he did while he was here was he bound the strong man so that he could deliver some of the souls out of his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It tells us in verse 14. Hebrews 2.14 For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus took on our nature. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. At his first coming, Jesus destroyed the power of the devil. At his first coming. Look at Colossians chapter 2. My favorite reference to this point. Colossians chapter 2. Was it a close battle? Was the conflict... Was the conflict in doubt? Not at all. Colossians chapter 2, it's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ and having our sins nailed to His cross in the last few words of verse 14. And it says in verse 15, "...and having spoiled..." How did He spoil them? He bound the strong man so that he could get into his house and take his goods. "...and having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly..." Triumphing over them in it, in the blood of His cross. Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil and the devil's claim against us and opened up the way for the gospel, regenerating us and translating us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. We've already read Matthew 12. What did it say in Matthew 12? Jesus said, I am casting devils out of men and they are being healed because I have bound the strong man and I am raiding his kingdom and taking men out of it. At his first coming. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And the 70, Jesus commissioned 12 apostles and he commissioned 70 others. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I wonder if he fell from heaven as lightning because there was a big chain around his ankle and he was going to be chained up in the bottomless pit because an angel threw him out of heaven and bound him up from holding all souls captive as he had up to that point in time. Notice how the 70 come back and say, listen, we are preaching in your name and in your name People that have been bound by the devil all their lives are being freed. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall as I watched you 70 go. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. How? Why would nothing hurt them in the preaching of the gospel by fishermen? Because the devil was bound chained, in prison, in a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and that thousand years began right here with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Verse 20, and that sounds like Revelation 20 as well, doesn't it? Because it talks about the book of life again, in conjunction with the devil being cast down and souls being delivered. But I want you to notice, behold, I give unto you power. Did he have the power to give? Did he have the throne of David? Did he have the keys of David? Did he have power over the devil to say, I give you power? You go out and preach the gospel everywhere, and they are not going to be able to hurt you, and you are going to deliver men from the power of the devil. Because the devil was bound at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 12. You say, I didn't know all these places were in the Bible to help me understand Revelation 20. Well, thank you for giving me the time to study it. And we're just giving you a smattering of a survey of the verses. Look at John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, Glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to them. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. This He said, signifying what death He should die. That He would be lifted up from the earth on the cross. And when He was lifted up from the earth on the cross, by His death on the cross, He defeated the devil's claim against us. And so the devil was cast out at the first coming of Jesus Christ. The same as Revelation chapter 12, the same as Revelation chapter 20, And bound because his power over men had been defeated. And so the gospel could go freely into all nations of the earth. Much more could be said about that. Nowhere are we saying that the devil is not roaming about seeking whom he may devour and tempting us as Christians. But as far as having a lock hold on us, the gospel was able to go into all the world and men were converted of every nation and every family, because the Lord had bound the strong man. He didn't save everyone. His purpose wasn't to save everyone. His purpose was to bind him enough that the gospel could go forth and find God's elect among all people. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. These are just all basic Bible verses that we should know, but we're pulling them together. We're pulling them together to realize that at the first coming of Jesus Christ, there were great things that happened in the spiritual realm. Now, Jesus dying on the cross and the sun being darkened, there being an earthquake, and the temple veil being rent from top to bottom, those are all pretty literal things that could be seen, but we're dealing with some things that are unseen. Matthew chapter 16, I referred to this not too long ago to you. Jesus has asked his apostles, whom do men say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, the Lord tells Peter, the Lord tells Peter that flesh and blood had not revealed that information to him, but his father in heaven. And he said in verse 18, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why wouldn't the gates of hell prevail against the church of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ had bound the strong man. The angel had come down and thrown the devil into the bottomless pit as far as deceiving the nations. He could no longer deceive all the men and women and children of the other nations of the earth. The Gentiles were going to have that bondage lifted from them and the gospel was going to go forth. Why do we read in Isaiah over and over that the Gentiles lived in great darkness, but a light had arisen upon them? And we find the fulfillment of that in Revelation, or do we find the fulfillment of that in Matthew? In Matthew, when John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene, and then their apostles. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. When it says bound in Revelation 20, it doesn't mean that he's not moving around. It means that He's bound from deceiving the nations like He had once deceived them. That's all the limit. That's all that it means in Revelation 20. It doesn't say there's no more devil. It says He's not deceiving the nations like He once had. He once had all of them worshiping totem poles, sticks, stones, bugs, animals, and the sun and the moon. But all those people that worship that way, the Gospel was able to go forth and convert some of them in all families of the earth because the strong man had been bound from deceiving all nations. There were the elect now within those nations that could see and hear and believe the gospel. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now we've read that a few times, haven't we? The word power. Power. Jesus Christ has the power. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Because of the power that's been given to me, I am now sending you forth. Behold, I've given unto you power, Luke 10, and you shall be able to tread over all your enemies, including spiritual enemies of serpents and scorpions. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, all nations. We want those words. Because those are the words in Revelation chapter 20. He could no longer deceive all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always. Even unto the end of the world. Amen. Did they do that? Were they able to do it? Did they have the power to go into all nations? Look at Mark 16. Mark 16, verse 19. Of course, the Schofield Reference Bible says that the last 11 verses of Mark 16 don't belong in the Bible, but we're going to read them anyway. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, they're two idolatrous manuscripts that the Pope owned, don't have these verses, and so they say we shouldn't have them. But we've got them, and the Church of Jesus Christ has had them for 2,000 years and believed on them. Verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere. Well, where did he tell them to preach? In all nations. So they went forth and preached everywhere in all nations, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. This is a tremendous change from the previous condition of the earth. The previous condition of the earth was that there was a man named Abraham and he started a godly family through Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob and they became God's people on earth. That's where the church was. But now it's been opened up to all the Gentile nations of the earth and the gospel's going forth and it's being believed and it's being preached by fishermen. And they're believing it. Because the devil is bound from deceiving all of them like he once had. And so there is an there is open opportunity. Paul said, Pray for me that a door might be opened for me to preach the gospel. An effectual door has been opened to me. Paul could see it. He couldn't believe it. Here's a Jew. Do you know the Gentiles have never really got very excited about the Jews? But a Jew can come into town and preach the gospel, and Gentiles would be converted. Because the Lord was with them. Amen. Romans. Let's turn to Romans and see if we can find anything about this. How about Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, once you nail down the binding of the devil and then you nail down the first resurrection, you're okay. Chapter's pretty easy. Fits the rest of the New Testament just like it should. Not coming up with something totally new that the rest of the New Testament doesn't know anything about. Romans chapter 1 verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The apostles were able to go to all nations because Jesus Christ had bound the strong man. Come over to chapter 16 of the same book, Romans 16. Romans 16 and verse 26. But now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. The gospel was going to all nations. If you were to go through the book of Acts, you can see the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter meeting men that were possessed of the devil, casting out those devils. There was a man on on an island that tried to keep the governor of that island from hearing the gospel. And Paul could... Throw blindness on him. Throw out the devil. Turn him away so that he could preach the Gospel and Sergius Paulus could be converted. Paul said when he gave a testimony of why the Lord appeared to him, because the Lord has appeared to me to go into all the earth and turn people away from the power of Satan and darkness to the light of the Gospel. That's Acts chapter 26. There's many, many more. We're going to leave them. Have to leave them. Back to Revelation chapter 20. The binding of the devil was at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he destroyed the works of the devil. He could no longer accuse the brethren in heaven and he could no longer hold all men captive on earth, even among Gentiles that for generation after generation had worshipped all sorts of foolish objects as their gods and had been held in total darkness. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that God in time, Acts chapter 14, God in times past has winked At their ignorance. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because the devil was bound. He winked at it all. He overlooked it. That they were all nations subject to the devil. The devil knew that. When the devil appeared to the Lord Jesus Christ, when he tempted him in the wilderness, he said, all these kingdoms have been given to me. I will give them to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus didn't say, you've got that mistaken devil. You don't have the kingdoms. He knew he had the kingdoms. But then he bound the devil from being able to so dominate those kingdoms that the gospel couldn't go forth with fruit. Not, I can't, that's all. That's all there is on that one. You can read the outline later. There's a whole lot more. And it's wonderful. I'm going to tell you, I don't think most of you, if not all of you, fully appreciate the great mystery of godliness. Why is it called the great mystery of godliness when it says he was preached unto the Gentiles and believed down in the world? That was an unbelievable thing. Unbelievable. Just as unbelievable as God was manifest in the flesh. Just as unbelievable as received up into heaven. Um, A man levitating right out of the presence of the apostles through the clouds and into heaven. It's that impossible for the gospel of Jesus Christ to have gone into all the world and men believed on it because they had been delivered from the palace of the strong man. Revelation chapter 20, and I saw thrones, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There's so much symbology in that fourth verse. I saw thrones. What 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 did he see those thrones for? Do you start thinking of a chair? Don't think of a chair. Think of authority. Think of kingly participation with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of something that the New Testament teaches us. And you know I have to hurry right now. But He's made us kings and priests. Amen. You don't need to see a throne. Think about what does a throne represent. A throne represents kingly authority. Do we have kingly authority since the first coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. 1 Peter two nine. Peter says, God has made us a royal priesthood. Do you know what the word royal means? Do you need a dictionary? It means you're a king and a priest. It's why we have in Revelation 1.6, which if you would read the first 19 chapters, before you get to the 20th chapter, we are kings and priests unto our God already by the first coming. So we see thrones. And that's our kingly authority with the Lord Jesus Christ that we presently have. It is on earth and it is in heaven. If a martyr dies and goes to heaven, he's got it here before he dies, and he's got it there when he gets there, and we're all tied together, because ye are come unto Mount Zion, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Amen. We're all connected together in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have gone before, some are still here, and some bodies are out in the cemetery. But the Lord says you're not going to prevent them that are asleep. I'm going to get those bodies out first before I haul you up, and before I burn the earth. First Thessalonians chapter 4. So as we read down through that fourth verse, this is a participation in Jesus Christ's authority on the throne of heaven. You know, if you went back and read chapters 2 and 3, He would tell those saints, if you'll be overcomers, you can sit with Me in My throne. That is, if, if they gave up their lives, they could be with Him. But we also had read to us Ephesians chapter 2, that says when we're born again, we are made to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus There is a vital connection with heaven and us in authority with the Lord Jesus Christ right at this moment. We have a new man that is part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are living and reigning with Christ over this universe. We're not in His presence yet, but He's in our presence. In fact, He's in us through the Holy Spirit, and He's dwelling with us forever. And we're living and reigning with Christ. The beast the beast is the Roman Empire. The image of the Roman Empire is the Roman Catholic Church. It's not all that difficult. The beast and the image of the beast. And stop thinking about a 666 six, six in a forehead or a 666 six, six in hands. The forehead and the hands. The forehead is your mind and the hands are all your practical works. You can't buy or sell unless you participated in that empire. Don't get, don't get overly excited about signs. Everybody starts to want, oh my, they're going to put a GPS positioning chip in my forehead. They're going to put it in my hands. Don't go there. You're making, you're making a symbolic book literal. Once you start down that path, what is going to save you? I'll say it's the salute of the U.S. Army. Touching your forehead with your hand. And you aren't going to be able to deny me. Right. Because you have no verse to support you and I don't have one either. So we end up arguing with each other. Oh, it goes on and on. All it's say, You know what the whole book's about? It's about a beast. It's about a beast that Daniel introduced us to in Daniel chapter 7. It's the Roman beast. Anybody that reads Daniel can understand that. A beast is not a man. A beast is an empire. And the empire is the empire of Rome, and Daniel taught us that. And what's the image of the beast? Well, the empire died, but it came back to life in the form of the Roman Catholic Church. Daniel told us about that. And that it would wear out the saints of God for 1,260 years. Now let me tell you something. 1,260 is not the same as 1,000. When somebody says, are you busy, you don't say, I've got 1,260 things to do. You know what I mean. I'm I'm really just asking. You you use the words, as soon as you get specific like that, we all know that you mean them literally. Maybe a little exaggeration sometimes. You know what I mean. We're back in verse 4. And these, these martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ that had His witness, that had the Word of God, that would not worship the beast, that would not submit to Rome, they wouldn't submit to pagan Rome, they wouldn't submit to papal Rome. They did not let that that empire, that beast, have dominion over their minds or their lives. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This book is to encourage such saints that if they're faithful and they'll be overcomers, they will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ and He has the ultimate victory. That's what verse verse 4 is about. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And brethren, we are living and reigning with Christ right now. It says that in Ephesians chapter 2. You've got to see it. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't want to refer to it. It wasn't too long ago that I preached through the book of Ephesians. And we stopped on that verse because it is so important. But we want to see it again. We had it read to us today. Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened is how the chapter begins. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're dead and then you're quickened, what does quickened mean? To make you alive. If you're dead and you're made alive, what is another word to describe that change? Good. We're making progress. Lots of it. It's a resurrection. If you were dead and now you're alive, you've been resurrected. It, says, it describes this twice. It says it in verse 1. It says it in verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together... And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's all I needed, that's all I should need is to show you that clear words out of Paul's mouth about our spiritual connection with Jesus Christ. We are come unto Mount Zion. I'm not waiting for Mount Zion. I'm in Mount Zion. No wonder we have Baptist churches in this country called Mount Zion Baptist Church. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Somebody understood these passages. We aren't waiting for Mount Zion. We're in Mount Zion. We've come already to an innumerable company of angels. We are already in contact with them because it is so certain that we will be with them physically because of the Lord Jesus Christ's work. And it, it begins with regeneration when we are made a new man with a new nature. That is when we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. We have a vital connection with Jesus Christ through our new man. Back to Revelation chapter 20. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead lived not again. The rest of the dead were not born again. The rest of the dead live not again. This is a spiritual chapter. This is a spiritual event. If you go to John chapter 5, which our brother Keith read to us. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Then three verses later he said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. It's not now. See, it's a future one. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Do you know why I'm holding up two? Because there is a first resurrection and there is a second resurrection. The first resurrection by the same Bible writer, John, wrote about it in John chapter 5 and it's regeneration when the Son of God speaks us into life Spiritually. And then there's a second resurrection when He hauls our bodies out of the graves. And those two are set as first and second resurrection in John chapter 5. And here we have it again. This is the first resurrection, verse 5. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that there are two physical resurrections. Nowhere. Nowhere are we told about two bodily resurrections. There is a spiritual resurrection and then there is a bodily resurrection of all men. The spiritual resurrection only raises the elect to life. The bodily resurrection raises all men to life. That's why it says the rest of the dead lived not again. They didn't get that first resurrection. They weren't born again. I love the combination of words, but the same writer again. They lived not again. They were not born again. Compare spiritual things with spiritual, brethren. It says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Is it important and a blessing to be born again of God? It is absolutely essential. Blessed and holy is he that is born again. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. If the second death scares you, the first resurrection is deliverance from the second death. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with Him a thousand years. I want to ask you, when do we become priests of God? After the first coming. When we're born again, when we're born again, we have a new man that is created in righteousness and true holiness. It can approach the holy throne of God and is accepted by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are kings and priests. You do not understand how high you've been exalted by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and all they can do is jam all that out the future and they do not see the glory that has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ for His people since His first coming. That's why we get so upset about it. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. When this period of time is about to come to a close, God is going to loose that binding that He had upon the devil. Now what was the binding? It was locking men up into error and lies and deception, deceiving the nations, all the Gentile nations of the earth, the rest of the world. And He's going to go and do it again. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. You want to start with the sand of the sea and make that literal? There's more individual grains of sand in one cubic foot of sand than there will be people on this earth at any point in time. Where do you want to start being literal in this verse? It's spiritual, brethren. It's spiritual. The devil is going to go back and lock up the souls of men in order to unite them together spiritually against the camp of the saints. And he's going to go up from the breadth of the earth, not with an army, no, no, no ship, no, no troop transports involved here. No troop transports. He's going to gather against the beloved city wherever he finds it. The beloved city is not one location on earth, The beloved city is the church of Jesus Christ. The devil is going to make a more concerted attack and he's going to be allowed greater liberty to unite men against the true churches and true saints of Jesus Christ just before Jesus Christ comes back. It's called the perilous times of the last days. We've read about it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where there is going to be a concerted effort against the true saints and churches of Jesus Christ by wicked men deceiving so-called Christians. You know, the thrust of what I've tried to teach you over the last number of years is that we are in those perilous times of the last days. There is a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Paul warned us about preachers who preach another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And if we go to that 2 Corinthians 11 and find that passage, who is behind that other Jesus and other spirit and other gospel? Does it tell us there? Satan. He appears as ministers of righteousness and he appears as an angel of light. He's a deceiver. I am not a prophet. I cannot tell you when we enter the little season before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I believe that we're in it? Yes, by virtue of the fact that the truth is so despised in the earth at the present time. The truth went everywhere. Men wanted to hear the truth in all nations. The enemies of the gospel said, these men are turning the world upside down. Let me tell you something about the truth. It is no longer turning the world upside down. The world is trying to turn it upside down. Even in America, with the seeker-sensitive movement and contemporary Christianity and casual Christianity and all the rest of the the changes and modifications to Bible Christianity is an assault upon the camp of the saints and upon the beloved city. That is why in 2 Peter chapter 3, the warning was, be steadfast! Because there's going to be every effort made to move us away from the hope of the gospel. We are to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Do you realize there isn't a single verse in any one of those places that tells us to buy guns, powdered milk, And go move off to the woods. Whenever you read about a man like that, he's an anarchist. He despises God-given authority, and he's rebelling against it. There isn't a verse in the Bible. The Bible tells us the devil is not a flesh and blood enemy. He is a spiritual enemy. And this chapter is describing a spiritual conflict that is going to get worse before it gets better. And when it gets better, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make everlasting peace by burning up all our enemies. That's what verse 8 means. You say, what about Gog and Magog? Oh yes, we need Gog and Magog. Just like we need the city of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. How much does the word Babylon help you in Revelation 17? What city is it under consideration in Revelation 17? Rome. Are you sure it's not Babylon? All John has done is pulled up one of the great enemies of Israel and called Rome Babylon because it's going to be a great enemy of the new Israel and of the new Jerusalem. And so she's called mystery Babylon the Great. What's Gog and Magog? Go look at Ezekiel chapter 38 and Genesis chapter 10. The only two places they're found in the Bible. They're the Scythians and a group of people that the Assyrians first assimilated and then the Persians who made war against Israel. They're a common enemy of Israel in one of the chapters of the Bible where God said, Son of Man, preach against Gog and Magog, the princes of Meshach and Tubal. You say, well, could those be the ancestors of the Russians? They might be, but who cares? The only reason they're in Revelation chapter 20 is to be a symbolic representation of the enemies of the people of God. That's all that's there for. Don't go to a map and look for Gog. Don't go to a map and look for Magog. There isn't any geographical limitations in this chapter. Any more than the camp of the saints is a bunch of Christians out in the sand of Texas in tents. That's where some preachers would want us to be. It's, it's the churches of Jesus Christ scattered throughout the earth, and Gog and Magog are Bible terminology, a sign from the Bible about it being an enemy of the church. That's verse 8. Verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This isn't a military conflict. This is a spiritual battle. The whole world is going to be united spiritually. Whether they get united politically or not doesn't matter. It does not matter. That is not the threat. The threat is they get united spiritually because they are all deceived again against the truth. And it's going to include a whole lot of Christians, according to Second Timothy 3 and 4, when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables, and evil seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I believe we're in that. There's lots of things that we could say about the present time that we're in, but I can't, I'm not a prophet. And the Lord hasn't given us precise details. He just says before the end there's going to be a little season. Just let me take a minute on this little season. And I did this with a few men at break time. When did the Seventh-day Adventists come into being? 1844. How about the Jehovah's Witnesses? A branch of them. 1840s and 50s. How about the Mormons? 1830s and 40s. How about higher criticism in Germany? 1830s and 40s. There has been a concerted attack against Christianity. Of right. Of heresy. And false doctrines and false cults and a disruption of the learning of God's Word and an overthrow of God's Word itself with the invention of all sorts of Bible versions and higher criticism against the integrity of the Bible has occurred in the last 150 years. Look at the very doctrine I'm trying to pose right now is the last 150 years. There has been great satanic activity in false doctrine that has been successful in the last 150 years. Who are the fastest growing denominations and religions in the world right now? I just listed them for you. They're going into all nations and captivating people with their false doctrines. Those are not branches of Christianity. Those are branches of a false brand of Christianity with another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And they are being very successful in the world. And the truth is, as we know it from the Bible, apostolic New Testament Bible Christianity is rarer and rarer and it's hated by all of them. We are despised by so many even in our own county because they have changed so much. I'm only 49 years old. I know sometimes I talk like that's 100. But I'm only 49, but in my lifetime the change in a typical Baptist church is profound. They used to thunder from pulpits in this county. From that Bible. Right. That Bible. And they thundered when they preached the Word of God. They weren't having Jesus rap and Jesus rock and all the other inventions of the churches today. That's all I can say on that. There, I mean, there's more that could be said, but that's all I'm going to say right now. This this war here in verses 8 and 9 is a spiritual conflict. It's the devil against the saints of God. And it, it gives it away when it tells us they came up against the beloved city. As soon as they say that, then all you've got to do is read Revelation chapter 21 and you find out what that beloved city is. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Jerusalem. Right. Jerusalem hasn't been beloved for 1,976 years when Jesus walked out of it for the last time and said, I'm going to tear you apart every single stone and lay you level with the ground and you're going to be trodden down to the Gentiles until this age ends. Verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the end. The devil is now cast into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. This is the Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming. They can come up against the beloved city. They can make all the advances they can in trying to exterminate us and the true gospel from the earth. But the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to rescue us and to destroy them. If you read Second Thessalonians chapter 1 last night and you heard it read this morning, you know that it fits that description perfectly. Jesus coming back with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And then it says, with the spirit of his mouth at his second coming, he will destroy the man of sin and all that's associated with him in chapter 2. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne. Why is it white? Because of the purity and holiness of the living God. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he appears in judgment the next time, this world, will they don't know anything about the Jesus Christ, the Bible. They keep wanting to put Jesus Christ, the Bible in a manger. They want to put Jesus Christ, a long haired hermaphrodite hippie on a cross with long hair. They've never seen this Lord Jesus Christ. The face of this Lord Jesus Christ will be so potent and powerful and glorious in its appearing that the heavens and the earth will disappear and there will be no place where they can go and hide. He will devour them with the fire of His wrath and they will melt with fervent heat in every way that we now know them. There will be no heaven and earth like we now know it when the face of the Lord Jesus Christ appears on His white throne of judgment. Yes, that should be a terrible thought when you read verse 11. Yes, it should be terrible. Yes, it should terrify us. Do you know what Paul said? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I. It is so frustrating to get in here and have a few minutes with you and to know that there is nothing outside that door. Nothing. To remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to sit on His white throne with mighty angels and flaming fire in vengeance to destroy all His enemies. We must remind each other It is why we have a church. It is why we get together. It is why we study these things. It is to be reminded, none of you have lived as well as you could have this past week or me in light of this coming day. And we want to walk out of this place and be more committed to living for Him who loved us and died for us but who is coming back to destroy His enemies. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. It doesn't matter if you've been a president or if you've been a pauper. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. All these books refer to as God's record-keeping of everything you have done in your life is going to be called to remembrance before God. It will not take him thousands of years to try the entire human race. It will take him only a few moments of time as long as he chooses to make it last. And we will all be held accountable. It didn't matter whether it was Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 14 that said every work shall be brought into judgment with every secret thing. You got some secrets on everyone else in here? Every secret thing is going to be brought into judgment. Even Solomon knew that. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5, which our brother read to us just moments ago. We'll be judged out of those books. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. What do you think this is? This is the resurrection. This is John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The hour is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come out of their graves. This is the resurrection. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ when He raises the righteous and the wicked for the final judgment. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. All the wicked dead and all those that have been held in hell for 6,000 years at the present time will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the final sentencing and execution of the punishment that they deserve for being sinners against the holy God. And that last verse, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. No wonder Jesus said, no wonder Jesus said, to His apostles when they came back and said, Lord, even the spirits are subject unto us through Your name. He said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that Your names are written in heaven. When are our names written in heaven? There's a false song sung in this county and every other county of this country. I was raised with it as a boy. It's called There's a New Name Written Down in Glory. But there's a problem with that song because there ain't no new names written down in glory. No names are being written down today because some band played well enough for somebody to make a decision for Jesus. The Bible tells us in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8 that the names were written there before the foundation of the world. Amen. Which matches up perfectly with Ephesians chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, and other places that tell us that we were chosen by God in Jesus Christ before the world began. That's how our names get in the book of life. Well, you say to me, how can I know that my name's in the book of life? I'm going to tell you right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your name is in the book of life. Then add to that faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, temperance. And to temperance, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. And if you'll do those things, you can make your calling and election sure and you'll never fall. Amen. That is the Bible Gospel about the book of life. If you want to know your name is in the book of life, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God, the Son of David, and He's sitting on God's throne at this hour. And He's coming again to judge the world, and He died on the cross for the sins of His people. That is not how you get your name in the book of life, but that's how you know it's there. And then you add to that faith good works that please the God who chose us by His grace. That's Revelation chapter 20. The spiritual conflict between the devil and the Lord Jesus Christ and men that are the true saints of God between the first coming and the second coming. Jesus Christ has the ultimate victory. The total victory. And will be in heaven forever with Him. And if you read the next two chapters of Revelation, it goes ahead and describes that city. And though it describes it in the terms of a cube, it's the elect family of God. The book is full of symbols. This was a spiritual conflict. There's a spiritual victory. And you've already been made part of it, those of you that have believed in the name of the Son of God. As we come to the Lord's table now, the book of life is called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life of the Lamb Slain because Jesus Christ died for everyone in that book and they shall be delivered from the second death. Someone in here is going to get the news soon that they've got cancer or some other disease that is, good, that is terminal. And we're all going to be alarmed to a degree. But you know what? Physical death is nothing compared to what I just read to you. Right. It is absolutely nothing. Physical death delivers you from all physical pain and worry of this life. You can get out of here. You can check out But I'll tell you something. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he checks you out and casts you into the lake of fire, that is an entirely different thing. It can't even be compared. People take vitamins. People go exercise. People read all this tripe about testimonials, about living another week in their lives. None of that matters. Every single ounce of energy we have and time that we can spare should be, should be spent in pursuing the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter said in Second Peter chapter 3, and that's what Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 5. As long as I am here or there, I'm going to do everything I can to be accepted of Him. Because it's God's acceptance of us that is everything. And the way that we know that we are accepted is by believing and obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first death is nothing. The second death is everything. But brethren, the first resurrection has saved us from the second death because Jesus died for us. And he took the wrath of God of the second death for every one of us. And that's what we remember in the Lord's Supper.